0: You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Presbyterian, a CREC church in Cochrane, Alberta. We invite you to visit our website at covenantpresbyterian.ca or contact us via email at covenantcochrane at gmail.com. We pray that you are blessed by the message. Our text this afternoon is Nehemiah chapter 4, and I promise we will do all of Nehemiah 4. So, if you please stand for the reading of the Word of God. Nehemiah chapter 4. Hear now the Word of God. Now, when Sambalit heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said, in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? will they themselves, will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and the burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Senbals and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were angry. And they all plotted together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them, day and night. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall." And our enemies said, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And at that, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and rose and said to the nobles, and to the officials, and to the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us that, the, that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half my servants worked on construction, and half held the spears, shields, and bows and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carry burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on their work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. The men who sounded the trumpet the man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are spread on the wall far from one another. On the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, for our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. And I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each of us kept his weapon at his right hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now would you please bow your heads as we pray. Our good and gracious God, we thank you for your word, and that we have the privilege of opening it before us. Well, Lord, we ask that you would help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear what you're telling us in your word this afternoon. We know that these are gifts that only you can give, and so we ask that you pour these good gifts out upon us. May we be remade by our encountering of you this afternoon, and may this be from the oldest to the youngest. And Lord, give me the words to speak, that I may preach this text as it ought to be preached. Amen. If you please be seated. So welcome back to Nehemiah chapter 4. This week we're just going to quickly recap, and then we're going to make our way through the rest of the chapter. So as we saw last week in this chapter, it's very much about how we as the people of God can handle and how we are to respond to opposition seeing as how many within the contemporary church kind of in our western place in our modern time have absorbed a foolish idea that a lack of opposition automatically means that we have the blessing of god assuming that the kingdom of god comes as the u.s airborne just parachuted in from above and that we as god's people are never to face any type of opposition as i'm sure you all know by now but that isn't the case all throughout the pages of scripture and throughout the history of our brothers and sisters down through church history we find example after example of god redeeming people from every nation tribe and tongue from every circumstance but none of this was accomplished without god's people also working god worked mightily through the preaching of george whitfield but whitfield still had to preach After all, Acts 14.22 reminds us that through tribulations, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So the Christian life isn't just a life that's called to ease, or for us to put our feet up and to just simply wait things out, to simply ride out whatever situation we might be in. Rather, the Christian life is the call of the redeemed to live with purpose and intentionality. Intentionality in the way that we raise our children, knowing that they are our legacy, that they will survive us and, Lord willing, will carry on the work that we are starting. Intentionality in the way we go about our work, knowing that we don't just go to work to do as little as possible for as much money as possible, for our Father sees us and He gives our work purpose. And intentionality and how we handle opposition. After all, we're not called to simply go along with every fad. Rather, the command to the people of God all throughout the Scriptures is to not be afraid, to have courage, to remember that the Lord, who is great and awesome, and also to stand faithful. So the question is, what does faithfulness look like? What does faithfulness look like for us? What does it look like for Nehemiah? After all, Christian resistance and faithfulness will look different in different times and places. Nehemiah's resistance looked different from Daniel's before him, or Peter and John's after him, and that was still different from the Apostle Paul, who lived at the exact same time as Peter and John. What we see throughout Scripture and throughout church history is that the same root of faithfulness will grow into different trees of resistance, so to speak, different trees of faithfulness. But they're all going to bear fruit that the Lord will bless. And it is wisdom, prayer, and the work of the Spirit to recognize what this will look like at different times and places. By wisdom, we're called to recognize the moment that we're in. Where we are called to push back against the tide. And unfortunately, during some times and seasons throughout the life of the church, there's more more places to push back on. There's more tide to resist. And next, we're also called to to pray and to seek the Lord's guidance in what does faithfulness look like. So we can look at the example of Daniel. He was a minority within the king's court. Daniel's resistance was to be faithful in his life and in his conduct. This then led him to be able to consistently speak the truth of God's word to the most powerful regime in his time, to the most powerful man in his day. And God was with him and blessed him. Whereas it would have been foolishness for Daniel to act in the same way that Nehemiah does here. After all, I don't know how well you're acquainted with the Persian court. If you were to simply try to pull out a sword in the presence of the king and kind of make your stand, you would end very quickly. Then we can uh, look at the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, uh, he proclaimed the gospel to all people in any venue that was before him. Whether that be in the synagogue, in the marketplace, the marketplace of ideas such as Mars Hill, to governors and kings. Everywhere that Paul went, he preached the gospel. And to anyone who was in front of him, be that the rulers to the lowly guards who were with him within prison. Everyone got the good news of the gospel and was called to faith and repentance. Now his last act was to use his his privilege and rights as a Roman citizen to proclaim the gospel in Rome. He said, "It's as a Roman citizen, he had the right to be able to go plead his case before Caesar. And that's exactly what he did. And we see his journey to Rome in the second part of the book of Acts. Along the entire way, he proclaims the gospel to anyone who is around him. And we know from church history that when he gets to Rome, he preaches faithfully in front of the Caesar who at that time was Nero, one of the most wicked men, one of the most wicked rulers who's ever lived. And what happens to him? He gives his life for it. Next, we see the example of Peter and John, who were commanded to stop preaching. What was their response? They said, they cannot but speak. So they face scourging, and imprisonment, and a life of hardship. So what resistance and faithfulness looks like in each one of these different examples. It's different based upon their circumstances. For Daniel, it was to use a wise word. For Paul, it was to speak to everywhere at all times and to get himself to Rome, to use his political rights that he had. For Peter and John, it was just the fact that they had a voice and they weren't going to be silenced. All three of these were faithful. So this afternoon, We're going to see faithfulness in the the face of opposition in the life of Nehemiah. What does fighting look like when you aren't just a stranger in a strange land? Or what what does that look like when you have access to the political process? When you're not just an outsider? So the big idea of this text is the same as it was last week. That the Lord calls us to be faithful. That the Lord is the one who stands and fights for us. And that we're also to stand. So the two main ideas from our passage this afternoon is that the Lord fights for us and that we are called to stand and to be prepared to fight as well. So just as a quick recap from last week, so we don't lose sight that it's the Lord who fights for us, the text opens up with the enemies of God gathered in a military parade reminiscent of what you'd see in, for example, North Korea or back in Nazi Germany. It's where a group is gathered where you have a wicked leader who is stationed in front of his military in front of what he thinks is his might and what he's going to do his intention is to demonize a different group intentionally belittling them and this is all meant as a pretext for further violence so his uh, his taunt what we see in the opening verses is that it essentially boils down to this that the people are worthless that they can't do the work that they set out to do that their God can't do it that the work even if they were capable of doing it that the work itself can't be done within this short of a time frame and finally that the materials they're using it's just garbage it's just ugly rubbish now to which Nehemiah recognizes that this isn't just some silly taunt this isn't just some political opponent to theirs just having some type of a grandstanding speech but rather that this is a serious threat from their opponents that this is actually a legitimate threat to them. So Nehemiah turns to God in prayer. And first of all, he recognizes that the Lord is the warrior of his people and that he's the one who defends them. Nehemiah recognizes that it is the Lord who fights for his people and that he's the one who delivers them. Be it from Egypt in slavery to delivering them at the Red Sea from Egypt's, or from the Pharaoh's army, or from taking the land under Joshua, or delivering the land from the, from the foes that the Lord sends to rebuke his people in the book of Judges. Hence why the psalmist calls on the Lord to rise up and to defend him as his shield and fortress. That's why when Nehemiah prays, he's asking for the Lord to vindicate them, to fight on behalf of his people, recognizing that they also need the Lord in order to overcome their opponents, that by their own strength, they'd never be able to stand a chance. By their own strength, they'd simply be acting as a defense ready to be overwhelmed. So this form of prayer, that imprecatory prayers, the imprecatory psalms, this isn't just something for God's people then, but that all the Bible is for us to pray as well. For we, just like they back then, we also need the Lord to to be the one who is our defender, that he's the one who avenges us. After all, the Lord says that vengeance is mine. So for us today, when we come across unfair times, we, when we ourselves are slighted, be that by those around us, be that by work, be that by extended family members, be that by any number of different situations, our response should be prayer. And it's okay for us to pray, O oh Lord, be just. O oh Lord, you are the one who I'm trusting in to defend, to defend me now. You are the one to whom I cling You are the one who will set these wrongs to rights. And we can see this boldness from Nia that it also emboldens the people. For in verse 6 we can see that the people, people kept on building the wall. And this is similar like when we look throughout church history we can look at examples of courage. Be that Athanasius, Chrysostom, Patrick or Boniface from the first millennia. Or the way that we look at Reformation figures the way that we look at them as heroes, be that Luther and Knox standing up to civil magistrates, standing up against Rome, or be that in our own day and age. Pastors like, for example, John MacArthur, Doug Wilson, James Coates, and Tim Stevens, for the way they stood up during the time of COVID. There's a sense in which boldness ends up being infectious. Nehemiah's boldness encouraged the people back then, that they kept on building the wall. For it says the people had a mind to work. And so we come to our text. We continue on. and We pick up in verse 7. This is when we see the scoundrels kind of regrouping. But when Zimbalat and Tobiah and the Arabs, the Ammonites and the Astrodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them by day and night. Now, I think the first thing to recognize, before we just had three kind of groups together. We had Sembal, Tobiah, the Arabs uh, under uh, Geshmu. And uh, now here we see that the Ashrodites were added in. We see now there's another group that has kind of joined the host of those who had aligned themselves against the people of God. Now, the referencing of this is actually uh, give us a bit of a ge- geographical clue. for we know that the enemy so far, that they consisted on the north, the east, and on the south, that Jerusalem was practically sealed in. And now if the Ashrodites Joining in, we we know they were to the west of Jerusalem. So what's meant to say is that now they're entirely surrounded; they're entirely blocked off. They wouldn't have a means of escape. That now the people of God, they're in a lot of trouble. It also we see here is that there is an escalation. For it says they were angry and they all plotted together to come and to fight against Jerusalem. We see an escalation; the tensions are ratcheting up. We can see that no longer was it just a speech in front of an army. But now they'd actually made plans to come and to resist. What's Nehemiah's response? Well, we see once again that he prayed. If there's one giant lesson to learn from the book of Nehemiah, it's that we are to do all things with prayer. There's never a moment in which things seem so dire or so urgent that we ought not to pray. But Nehemiah also responds by setting a guard. He recognized the Lord's the one who is ultimately to defend them. That without God's aid, without God's help, they would never be able to withstand their enemies. But he also acts wisely in setting up his own guard. And then in verses 10 to 12, we can see kind of what this does to the people. So in Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild it. And her enemies said, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So I think here, we see kind of how the people saw themselves. Here we get the response of the people of God. In verse 10, we see how it is that the people themselves, how they understand their work. We see that now they're becoming... Overwhelmed. Now they're beginning to lose heart. They're starting to think, perhaps this task, we're halfway through. But maybe this is too much. Maybe in light of all this opposition, maybe we've bitten off more than we're able to handle. Then in verse 11, we get get a little bit of a a snapshot of how it is that they see their enemies. For the way that they understand what their enemies said was that they're going to come, that we won't even know until they're amongst us that they're going to come they're going to kill us and that we don't stand a chance and verse 12 we get to see how it is that the people respond what we'll see later on in the book of nehemiah is that most of the people actually didn't live within the city itself most of the people lived in kind of the villages surrounding it so now we see that the jews who lived near came from all directions and said to us you must return to us this shows that the people themselves they were expecting to be attacked the people were expecting any moment now, any moment now, we're going we're to face our enemy. And they're saying, We can't defend ourselves. So come now back, return to the villages and defend us. But now, how does Nehemiah respond? Our text says So, in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Now here I think there's actually a lot of kind of little detail kind of hidden in the text. For when it says, In the lowest spaces behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people. What he's saying here is, I put the people at the places where the wall's the lowest, where the enemy can see them. That's where I stationed my soldiers. What he did, he put them in a place where they were to be seen. This wasn't that they were hiding behind the wall, kind of peeking out. But rather he stations them so that the enemy can see we're not afraid. We're not just going to go silently into the night. Rather it's so that they can be seen. This is a sign we're not going anywhere. Next, he mentions that the people by their clans, so this is according to the family groupings. Now, when we see ancient Israel, as they came into the land, they fought in accordance with their clans. They fought kind of in their extended family groupings. Now, there's a brilliance to this as it's it's to kind of encourage the courage of the people. For when you're with those who you're closest with, that's naturally the people you have the closest affinity with. Those are the people that you're going to fight the strongest for. It's not that they're fighting with a bunch of strangers who they'd never met. Rather, it's they were stationed with their brothers, their cousins, their fathers and sons together, all manned the line together. So that if the attack was to come, they'd be fighting for those who they knew, for those who they loved. Next one, it mentions their swords, their spears, their bows. This is once again a way of saying that they were ready for war. Now, it might seem kind of redundant to us. Why does it say they had their swords, spears, and bows? Rather, this was the three different ranges at which war was to be fought in. It's saying that no matter which way you want to fight, we're ready. Swords were for close combat. That's if you want to sneak in and try to attack us uh, from close quarters, we're ready for you. If you want to have a formal battle, that's in which the range of spears were used. At the time, largely, you had shields and spears, and the the spear was the primary weapon. This was for mid-range combat. So if you want to run at us with swords, we're ready for you. We have spears. If you want to try to lay siege to us, we have bows. We'll shoot you as you come in. This is their way of saying, no matter what way you want to fight, we are ready for you. We'll meet you in whichever way. Now, so far it can be tempting for us to think this is kind of like the Navy SEALs, SEAL Team 6, or some type of special forces uh, that they're getting ready to roll out and wreak havoc somewhere. Or it's like Leonidas and his 300 distinguished Spartans to be ready for war. But I think that's kind of missing the point. Because what we know of the people so far is that this is the people who struggled with courage. When Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem, he needed to inspire the people. He needed to get them to rise up. So I think when we think of how it is that the people are, a far more apt analogy would be to think of it more like in the two towers. The Lord of the Rings, the two towers. I had to have a Lord of the Rings reference at some point in time. It's been a while. It's right before the Battle of Helm's Deep. We see um, that as the, as the battle's getting closer and closer, and as they recognize how hopeless it is, as they have the whole army of the Orakai marching on. We see that in Helm's Deep, uh, anyone who's able to, to wield a weapon is basically suited with it. We see those who are entirely too young to fight in a battle and those who are far too old to fight in a battle. They're given swords and spears and armor. Facing what's most likely going to be uh, their destruction. Now for those of you who've read the books or seen the films, I'm sure most of you in here have seen the films by now, as you read it, as you see it, you get the sense that despair is in the air, that things are hopeless. We, in comes Aragorn, who's the, uh, the rightful king of Gondor with his two friends, uh, Legolas and Gimli. And it's, uh, Aragorn points out kind of the hopelessness of situation. He points out that it's farmers, farriers, and stable boys. These are no soldiers. And then we end up having uh, Gimli responds, Most have seen too many winters, or too few. That's the idea. That's the army that's being marshaled here. It's not some type of a crack squad of soldiers. It's not a it's not kind of who you'd want to call upon. Rather, this is the people standing up. This is the people defending Jerusalem, defending their families with everything that they have. That's more what we should be thinking of. And now we get to Nehemiah. How does he speak to the people? He says, do not be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. So the first thing he says is remember the Lord. Why? Because it's the Lord who is to defend them. It's the Lord who's the one who gives them any hope of victory. It's the Lord who's able to deliver them. Why? Because he is great and awesome. Then as we continue on we see that uh it says fight for your brothers your sons and your daughters your wives and your homes so by saying by fighting for your brothers he's saying fight for your honor there's an honor within this that you are to act honorably next when it says your sons your daughters your wives and your homes he's saying also fight for your legacy that's your children and the inheritance that you leave and the Bible it tells us that a, a godly man leaves an inheritance for their children's children. Saying, "Your home. Fight for your legacy. Fight for what you pass on. But more importantly, fight for those who will carry on after you. Fight for your wives. Fight for those whom you love and cherish. Now, I think one of the things that's important to remember is that within this passage, it's saying to fight. The people are getting ready for a fight. I think one of the things that for us to remember is that Christians are not called to be pacifists. Under the Christian um, heritage there's something called the just war theory. One of these is that when you, it's okay to fight a war within a defensive stance, within a defensive posture. That's what we see here. The people are arrayed. The people are ready to fight. And Within here, we see that they're fighting in a legitimate way. They recognize that they have a legitimate governor. This, in Christian theology, has been deemed uh, the lesser magistrate. This becomes actually crucially important within the Reformation history. As within Reformation history, you had the Holy Roman Empire, but you also had, within that, princes and electors. Uh, For example, with Luther, he recognized that he he was under the authority of the civil magistrates, but he also recognized that He had the prince that was directly over him and that that prince was able to say, no, this is wrong. So they're able to civilly disobey. They're able to civilly stand. And that's what we see here. We see that Nehemiah is a legitimate authority. They have a legitimate way of fighting. So they do so. They're not acting simply as pacifists. And in case anyone ever says to you that the early church was, we're all pacifists, you can respond by letting them know that the early church didn't end up fighting in Caesar's army or Christians weren't allowed into Caesar's army originally by the order of the pastors and bishops because to join those armies always required there to be a religious ceremony. It required there to be a religious allegiance sworn to Caesar. But when that was no longer the case, then we saw just war theory developing as Christians recognized the world that they were in and that as good Christian rulers recognize that from Romans 13 that they had the authority to wield the sword they had the authority and the responsibility to ensure a just ordering within their societies but also to defend their people then as the text goes on from verse 15 we see that it's uh, when our enemies heard and it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan we all returned to the wall each to his work From that day on, half my servants worked on construction, and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. Now we see what happens. That time of crisis, that initial time of crisis, that's past. What does life look like when we return back to the normal, recognizing that there's still opposition? Well, we see that Nehemiah organizes his people in such a way that they're still able to carry on the work that God has called them to, but but they still... uh, stand ready to resist. By saying that we all return to the wall, it's a recognizing the tyranny of the urgent isn't meant to call us away from what God has commanded us to do. There's many times in life throughout the week where it can seem that we just have too much stuff to do, that the to-do list just ends up getting longer and longer and longer. It feels as if we're just getting buried in whatever the task at hand is. I think here we can see that no matter what ends up happening, there's never a point at which we can say it's, there's too much for us to live as Christians. It's never too busy for us to pray. It's never too busy for us to open up God's Word and to read. Now, want it mentions that each one to his work from that day on, half the servants worked on construction and half held the spears. I think here we get kind of a, a beautiful picture of what it is for the people of God to work together. For those in 1 Corinthians 12, it mentions that the, the body is, that the church is like the body. That everybody has their own particular part, but we're all meant to work together uh, in unison. And that's what I think we see here, 1 Corinthians 12. That there were those who worked, those who did the construction work, and there were those who were ready to defend. So I think for us, within the church, a great question to ask is, what has God burdened you with? Now, knowing many of the people in here, I can say that I can recognize many of you have fantastic gifts and abilities. God has given you incredible talents. So, how do we work together so that you can use those gifts? How is it that you can honor those things that God has given to you? And how is that... We can all come together for this. Next, it mentions that the leaders stood behind the whole of the house of Judah. Here it shows that the people were unified in purpose. This is meant to show that there wasn't just some group off there doing, doing one thing, but the leaders kind of didn't really care or that they were disconnected. Rather, it shows that all of the people were united in one purpose. And as it says, there were those who worked with one hand and carried the weapon in the other. For those who weren't able to carry a weapon in one hand and work with the other, for those who needed both their hands, they had their sword at their side. And then just in case the enemy attacked once more, Nehemiah had a a, a trumpeter who was beside him. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated by the wall Far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. For our God will fight for us. What we see here is that even in the midst that they're continuing on with the work that God had called them to do, yet they they also made provision for what happens should the enemy come and attack us. I think the wisdom from this is for us to think through in our own time and place. What is it the Lord has called us to? What is it the Lord has called each of you individually to? How is it that we can support one another within this? But then also being aware of the moment in which we're in. How is it that we're able to also defend one another? How is it that we're able to recognize that our God is the one who will fight for us? And so our passage closes with, And we labored at the work, and half of them held spears, from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may guard us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me. None of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. I look in here, there's a call for us to be sober-minded. There's a call for us to recognize that even within our own day, we might face persecution once again. The time might come once again when churches aren't able to openly meet, or when we see a crackdown in light of government censorship. I think within this passage, we see there's, there's a call to remain sober minded, a call to remain vigilant, not just simply fall asleep at the wheel, or to just think that everything's gone back to normal, that we can just cruise on by. So I think to the question of this text, is what does it look like to resist? Well, we saw with Daniel, he used the proximity that he had to power. Peter and John, they used their voice and their stick to the way in which they didn't give up. For Paul, it was opportunity in his Roman citizenship that he used in the face of opposition. And for Nehemiah, it was his full civil abilities, his full civil rights, so to speak and his authority within his role within government. So for us what does faithful opposition look like? Well, it looks like using all the tools that are that are at our disposal. Using our voice. Using our influence with those around us, using our own sway within the political system. It means that we're not simply to to shy away or to Hide ourselves away, thinking that, well, the troubles will just pass. Or we're just going to ride this out. Rather, faithfulness in the, in the face of opposition looks like, what are we able to use? How are we able to resist? And then using those tools at our disposal. Be that writing every senator during the uh, the update from the, uh, the suspension of civil liberties in uh, last year. Writing every single senator, that was uh, what I know at least one person did. Voting. Speaking up. Raising awareness. That is what faithfulness looks like. But most of all, preaching the gospel to those who are around us. Using the voice that we have within the lives of others. Now, why is it that we're able to do this? How is it that we're able to have this confidence that the Lord is the one who fights for us and therefore then we stand up as well? Well, it's because Christ has won the battle for us. In Colossians 2, verses 13 to 15, it says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What this says is that how do we know that Christ is one? First and foremost, Christ paid the penalty for our sins. Christ died in our place. It mentions that he forgave us of our trespasses. Therefore, we can know that we are made right with God, that we can come before him as his people. Next, it says that by this, by his death on the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame. Christ is the one who who has conquered. Christ is the one who has won. Christ is the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father in authority, and that he is the one who rules. Therefore, we, we can have an assurance that with God behind us, it doesn't matter who stands before us in opposition. So then, how are we then to live in light of this passage? Well, a few things. One is to pray. Shouldn't be a shocker to anybody here. Kind of one of those things we see all the way throughout this passage. Next is to be bold like Nehemiah. In your prayers, don't be afraid to, to pray what we see all across the scriptures. Don't be afraid to say, this is wrong. After all, that's what the prophets did. The prophet said, this is wrong because of what God has said. Because of God's good law. And next, in this passage we see that it's all the people came together for the work. What is it the Lord has burdened you with? Where is it that you are gifted? Where is it that you are called to work? And then how are we able to encourage one another to this how are we able to assist one another in accomplishing these tasks isn't just one of those things that we just pat each other on the back and say all right go get them charlie rather taking serious the fact that we are called to be one body working together and lastly let us not forget as verse 14 says do not be afraid of them remember the lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters your wives and your homes let us not forget it is the Lord who stands behind us and that we are then also called to stand faithfully because of who he is but also for the sake of those who are around us with that let us close in prayer Lord thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to to open it. May we be remade by it. May this text not just be something that we slough off, but rather may we remember that you, oh Lord, that you are our warrior, that you are the one who who fights for us, and that if you are for us, who can be against us? And Lord, help us to recognize also that because you stand behind us, that you go before us, that you Are the one who defends us, that therefore we can also stand. So Lord, I pray that you give us a courage and a boldness to be faithful in our day. Lord, may we with wisdom know where it is that we ought to press against. Grant us wisdom for this. Lord, for for us as a congregation, may we then encourage one another in the work that you have called us to individually. It is in your name we pray. Amen.